This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Our dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that when you speak, you create life and you sustain life, give life. And so we pray for us now, Lord. We pray that you would eliminate all the distractions from our minds. May your spirit soften our hearts so that we can hear what you have to say to us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I have two older brothers. And when I was a young teenager, I think I was about 12, 13, around there, my two older brothers and I were given a job. We were to get up on the roof of our house and we were to spend the day cleaning away all the leaves on the roof. Uh, In Australia, lots of trees, leaves come down. They have a very nasty habit of clogging up the drain pipes that are on our roof. Well, I especially remember this day because it was the first time my father allowed me to get up on the roof with my two older brothers. So I was really excited and I got up with a broom in my hand and carefully walked around on this tin roof making sure that I didn't walk in the wrong spots and put my feet through the roof. And I was sweeping up the leaves and uh, enjoying myself thinking that I'd come of age. And at one point I was starting to get a bit uh, too proud and, uh, you know, was... um, not just walking, but kind of jogging around on the roof, when all of a sudden, I lost my balance. And I fell on my back, and I started to slide off the roof. I had gloves on, and I went to try and stop myself, and I couldn't. And I started to slide off the edge of the roof, and I could look down, and I could see how far down to the ground it was. And as I started to slide off, I panicked, and I started yelling my head off, not like a teenager, but like a little kid. It was a terrible feeling as you could as you could feel yourself going off the edge of the roof. And I thought, here we go, I'm going to do some really bad damage. And I was screaming, felt myself going off until my elder brother grabbed me on my arm and he pulled me to safety. I learned afresh that day that try as I might... I cannot ignore gravity. (laughs) Now, my physicist friends tell me that nobody knows what gravity actually is. They can describe something of how gravity works, but no one has a clue what gravity is. Now, we may not be able to understand gravity, but we can't ignore it. We live with it every day. We may not be able to understand gravity. But we we must know something about it. Otherwise, we could do some really big damage if we jumped off a bridge. And can I say, the same goes for the topic of the Trinity. We may not be able to fully understand it. But we must know about the Trinity. Why? Because we can't, as Christians, live without it. As the great 5th century theologian Augustine said, anyone who denies the Trinity loses his salvation, but anyone who tries to understand the Trinity loses his mind. Why? What is so important about the Trinity? Well, thank you for asking that question. It's a very good one. That's what we're going to do right now. But before we do that, let's just have a brief recap on our map of doctrine. Remember, what we're doing this weekend is that we're looking at the major topics of the Bible, what Jude calls the faith, And we're seeing how they're interconnected, that we can summarise them as a whole. Can you remember what the most important topic was? The gospel. 
And can you remember what the gospel was? That's right. The work of Christ, that he died and he rose, and the person of Christ, he's the king, he's the Christ. Why have we got a gospel? Sin, that's right, doctrine of sin. And who is it that sins? Humanity, that's right. And what was the origin of humanity? Where did they come from? Doctrine of creation, that's right. And we saw yesterday that if we get the doctrine of creation right, creation ex nihilo, what does that teach us? What's important about that? Creation from nothing, sorry, I used Latin. Creation from nothing. What's important about that? Tells us something about God, that God is infinite, that he's eternal. So it's connected to our doctrine of God. Do you remember that topic there? Knowledge of God. Some people are great. Memorised it. We saw that the gospel is all about salvation accomplished. But then it's got to be applied. And this is the topic of salvation. That's right. It's not just me who's saved. It's the church. That's right. And then the last thing. It's fantastic. Brilliant. Okay. So yesterday we did the Doctrine of Creation. Now we're going up to the topic of God and we're going to be thinking about the Trinity. And we're going to do it like the Doctrine of Creation. We're going to follow through the controversy of the early church as they were faced with a problem. And the problem was something like this. As the early church read the Bible, they could see that the Bible clearly taught on the surface four things. Number one, there is one God that Christians believe in. But number two, they saw the New Testament said the Father is God. The New Testament also teaches that the Son is God. And the New Testament teaches also that the Spirit is God. Here's the problem. How can all those four truths be true at once? How can God be both one and three at the same time? Well, there are a variety of solutions that were proposed to solve this one and three problem. One of the first solutions was proposed by a man called Sibelius. And this is often called Sibelianism. And he came along and he said, now look, Uh, This one and this three problem is really easily solved. Just think about it. God is one. Uh, This is called modalism, by the way. God is one, but God has appeared three ways or in three modes in history. That is, the one God appeared in the Old Testament as Father, And then he appeared in the gospel, that same God, as son. And then after the day of Pentecost, he appeared again as spirit. That is, the one and the three problem was solved in this way. It was to say that there was one God who appears in three modes or appears in three ways. But the early Christians, as they listened to that solution, said, no, 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 there's a problem with that. That doesn't seem to work. What do you think the problem is? Can you think of anywhere in the Bible that might speak against this idea that God is one, but he appears in three ways? Jesus' baptism. That's right. That's a perfect example, isn't it? Because there you have Jesus getting baptised, but at the same time, God the Father says, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased. And at the same time, the Spirit comes down like a dove. So that can't be one God who appears in three ways. Another place in the Bible, of course, is when Jesus prays to the Father. See, Or any time where you've got Jesus and then the Father says something. That can't be one God who appears in three ways because there are two at once and there are three at once. So, the early church recognised that this 
solution of modalism doesn't work. It's not true to the Bible. Well, a second solution was proposed. And this is what we call... Oh, sorry. One of the things that we learn because of the problem of modalism are three more things about God that you can now deduce from the Bible. And that is, learn from the debate over modalism that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son cannot be the Father or the Spirit and the Spirit cannot be the Father and the Son. So that gives us a little bit more data to work with. Well, this second solution was called tritheism. And tritheism acknowledged those last three statements, five, six and seven, that the Father, the Son and the Spirit had to be different. Now the man who proposed tritheism, I've got to give you his name, his name is John Philoponus. John Philoponus. One of the great things about uh, early theologians is their names. John Philoponus. And John Philoponus came along and he said, look, of course, <clears throat> there's three in the, in, uh, in the Godhead, in the Trinity. And we can solve this problem of God being three in one. It's really easy. Just think about it. What? We've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yes, they must be different. But what is it that they have in common? Well, just this. Each one of them is God. There are three who are all God. They are each God. And so, therefore, we can say that they are three gods, but one kind. Three gods, but one kind. Each of them is a god, is the god, three gods, but each of them are divine. They are one kind. We're a group of humans here, aren't we? But we're not dogs. We are of kind human beings. We're not trees. We are of kind human beings. You can distinguish us from trees and dogs. We are human. And that's how we think about God. There are three gods, Father, Son and Spirit. But you can distinguish those three from everything else. Remember we saw they're not the creation. You can distinguish them. What kind are they? They are a kind called God, just like I am a kind called a human being. But as the early church heard that, they thought, no, 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 there's, there's something wrong with that as well. And the problem is this, is that nowhere, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible say there are three gods. That's actually polytheism, more than one God, and the Bible continually denies this. When Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, what does he say? I am the Lord and there is no other. Behold the Lord your God, the Lord is one, the only God. Just as Isaiah says there, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. In other words, there's only one God and no other God. Think of Paul's great words that we saw last night in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king, not the kings, but the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Look at this. The only God. Not one God amongst three. Well, look even at Jude 25, to the only God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, power, authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, etc., etc. So, one God and three modes is wrong, but also the solution of three gods, of which there is one kind, is also wrong. So how do we make sense of what the Bible says? Well, it's just this. We must recognise that when we're talking about God as one, and when we talk about God as three, we are talking about different things. 
We're actually talking about two different perspectives on God. You can answer this question from two different perspectives. What is Marty like? You can answer that from two perspectives. What is Marty like? Well, Marty is, well, his flesh and his bones, his skin. Uh, there's not much hair. Uh, you know, it's a lot less hair every day as I get up and look in the mirror. You know, there's a heart, there's blood, there's guts, all that kind of stuff. That's answering the question, what is Marty from one perspective? Now, um, what are you, what perspective is that on me? What are you describing when you say, what is Marty? And we describe it as flesh and bones and all that kind of thing. What are you describing about me? Physical? Biological? My body? You could call it my substance, couldn't you? Okay? Uh, the what? What is Marty? But you can also answer the question, what is Marty, from another perspective. What is Marty? Here we go. Perspective number two. Marty is witty, charming, kind, very, very humble. I could keep going, but why don't we just stop there? just don't want to overwhelm anyone. When we answer the question that way, what are we describing? Per personality. personality, right? So on one hand, substance. On the other hand, personality, or what you might describe as my person. So we've got two perspectives, substance and person. Substance is the what, person is the who. Now, when we turn to God, God is one and three according to these two same perspectives. See, we must understand God according to the perspective of substance, but we must also understand God from the perspective of personality or person. Now, what is substance? When I describe my substance as flesh and bones and all that kind of thing, substance is the capacity to do. This body can do certain things. It can lift the lectin, okay, uh, all those kinds of things, not as strong as some of the other male substances that are out there. We probably do better things and better looking than this substance here, but it's the capacity to do. But when we talk about person, it's the capacity to relate. Person is in relationships. So when we talk about the Godhead, and we speak of God as one, we're talking about God's substance, his capacity, his ability to do things. And when we talk about, talk about God as three, we're talking about his personality, or should I say three personalities, or probably even better, three persons, and we're talking about his capacity to relate. Remember? I'm one substance, one person. God is one substance and three persons. My substance is very limited. It can only do certain things and not very well. But God's one substance, his capacity to do is what well, we learned it yesterday, didn't we? It's all-powerful. It's eternal. It's infinite. It's all-knowing. It has no needs. God's substance, unlike mine, is unchanging. Mine is wearing out. My hair is falling out. I'm getting weaker by the day. That is the what of God. So there is his one substance. It's infinite and he can do infinite things. But in that one substance, there are God's three persons. There is the Father who uses up all of the divine substance. If he didn't use up all the divine substance, he wouldn't be fully divine. And then there is the Son who at the same time uses up all the divine substance. And if he didn't use all of it, then he wouldn't be fully God. And then there is the Spirit who also uses all of the divine substance or all the divine body. And if he didn't use up all of it, he wouldn't be 
divine. See, if the Father inhabits the one substance, it means that the Father is all-powerful and all-knowing. The Father has no needs, that the Father is unchanging. And if the Son uses up all the divine substance, then it means the Son is all-knowing and all-powerful and has no needs and is unchanging. And if the Spirit uses up all the divine substance, then what can the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit can do anything because the Spirit is all-powerful and knows everything because he's all-knowing and has no needs and is unchanging. Christians believe in one God, that is one divine substance, and three persons. Christians do not believe in three gods. That would be three divine substances. We believe in one God, one divine substance, and three persons. Just as a side note, when you read the word God in the New Testament, that is mainly, 95% of the time, that is a reference to the person of the Father. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, for the person of the Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. Okay, just remember that when you read the Bible. Now, we learn something of how God can be one substance and multiple persons in that famous verse, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, that's the Son. The second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, i.e. has a relationship with God as Father. That's the Word and the Father. They're in a relationship. But it also says, and the Word was God, or better translated, was divine. So there the Word is God, but is also in relationship with the Father. One substance... One divine body, if I can put it that way. One divine power. But in that verse there are two persons. Now, this teaching about the Trinity developed in the early centuries of the church and then the belief of the Christian Trinity was formulated and codified in what we call the Nicene Creed. Uh, This teaching about God being one substance and three persons. Now, you might be sitting there and you're thinking, for goodness sake, mate, Thursday morning we're away in a camp, you're, you know, using substances and persons and you're talking about being bald and all this kind of, you know, and I'm just sitting here just, for goodness sake, and it's, it's going over my head. Has this got any practical purpose whatsoever? Absolutely. Why is it so practical? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement, God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person And if God was just a single person, then before the world was made, there was no love. In other words, let me put this another way. When we say God is love, we're talking about God from the perspective of the three persons. He is Father, Son and Spirit from all eternity loving one another. And that's what we mean by the statement, God is love. We are saying, ultimately, that God is a community of persons. And that is why love is the greatest commandment to Christians, because it reflects something of who God is. A trinity of persons. That's why the heart of Christian spirituality is not about solitude and running off into a monastery. The heart of Christian spirituality is about entering into relationships with people. Love because God is love. What's way more important to God is not a successful career, but love of people. 
How you treat people is so much more important than what you do. Proverbs 16.32 Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a sin. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. As Paul says in Galatians 5.6, the only thing that counts, did you get that? The only thing that counts in the Christian life is faith expressing itself in love. Life is about relationships. First our relationship with God and then our relationships with others. Why else is the Trinity so important? It shapes the way that we relate to God. See, Christianity is not fundamentally a philosophy. It is not fundamentally an ideology. Christianity, at the end of the day, is fundamentally a relationship. It's a relationship with the Godhead. But let me ask you this. Which of the divine persons do you relate to? Father? Son? Spirit? Uh, let me ask this question another way. When you pray, which of the persons do you pray to? And why? Now, what does the Bible say about the way that we should have a relationship with God? Well, it puts it this way in Ephesians 2.18. For through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now notice the three persons of the Godhead in this verse. Notice through Christ, there's Christ, we both have access to the Father, there's the other person, through the Spirit, the third person. But notice the ordering of the relationships here. It's through Christ... We go to the Father through or by the Spirit. Now, do you see ultimately who we're relating to, who the goal of our, of our salvation is towards? Here's, let's say, the believer. We talk about them having a relationship with God, but what do we mean by that? Well, ultimately we mean, we mean this. The ultimate goal of our salvation is to have a relationship with God as our Father. How do we enjoy God as our Father? We can only enjoy God as our Father if we go through the Son. The salvation that the Son has won. But we can't go through the Son to the Father unless... The Spirit is at work in our hearts, empowering us, urging us to do so. Who do we pray to? Well, Scripture only commands us to pray to the Father. Yes, of course we can pray to the Son and the Spirit. They're both persons. There's no problem with that. But Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. Because the goal of our salvation, the end point of our salvation, is to enjoy the first person of the Trinity as our loving, kind, benevolent, caring Father. But we can only enjoy God as a Father. There's only one way to do that, and that's through Christ. Because it was Jesus who opened up the way so that we could call God Father. But there's no possible way that we can go through Christ except if the Holy Spirit comes and softens our hearts and empowers us to do so. And as Romans 8.15 says, the Spirit of the Son is sent into our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, if you don't understand the Trinity, you don't really know how to relate to God day by day minute by minute. Okay, so there's just a brief introduction to the Trinity. God is one and three. He is one substance. He is one what? One substance, an eternal substance, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing. But 
There are not three gods, there's only one God, there are three persons. And each person takes up all of the substance, Father, Son and Spirit. One God, three persons, we are not three gods. Let's now move to the next topic. Moving from God now to the topic of humanity. It's only appropriate that we understand God before we come and talk about humans. See, one of the greatest questions that humans of every culture have asked themselves is this. Who am I? It's really this question. Am I significant? Now, science can't answer that question. Science may be able to explain how your body works, but science cannot tell you whether you're valuable or significant. When I first married my trophy wife, Jenny, my Bollywood princess, There was something that struck me as we met new friends together as a couple. I noticed something very interesting. It was how differently people would treat Jenny as soon as they discovered that she was a medical doctor. We'd introduce ourselves and we'd chat away and Jenny would get a little bit ignored and then there'd be the question, you know, what do you do? I'm a medical doctor. And then I'd notice a whole change in the way she was then treated. There'd be an interest and a respect. And it struck me afresh how in my country, what you do gives you value. And you know, some people devote their entire lives to climbing the career ladder, getting the ultimate kind of work just so that they can think they are valuable. Of course, if there's no God, then we humans are just the product of chance. And if there's no God, then there can be no ultimate person, a purpose. And whether we're a doctor or a cleaner is ultimately meaningless. Because even our opinion of each other is meaningless because our opinion of each other is just an electrochemical reaction inside brains that are ailing. And yet, despite all of that, humans keep asking, who am I? Am I valuable? And it's here that Christianity has real answers. Because if God created the world, if he designed humans, then we can know who we are. And so we move to the topic of humanity. Look at the map there. We move now from God, we've done creation, and we're coming down to the topic of humanity. So, let's think about humanity. When we come to the creation account of Genesis 1, we discover that humans are actually the pinnacle of God's creation. You see, when God creates in Genesis 1, he keeps saying, let there be. Let there be light. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. And then when he comes to create humans, it changes. From let there be to let us make. There's something important about this. See, what is it in the creation account that makes humans distinct from the rest of creation? It's that they are made in the image of God. You might want to turn to Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26. And look at what it says about how humans were made. It says, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. What is it that distinguishes humanity from 
everything else in creation that is made, it is that they are created in the image of God. And notice the next verse. We've got this poetry here in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Look at these next words. Male and female he created them. Notice that both males and females are made in the image of God. Now the burning question is this, what is the image of God? Well, notice what Genesis 1.26 says. Look at it again. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. Notice these next words, In our likeness. Whatever else the image of God in humans is, it is that we are like God in some way, that the rest of the creation is not. Now what does it mean to be like God? Well, some people have said it means that the image of God is to rule. That's what Genesis 1.26 seems to infer. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea. So the image of God is as we rule, but that's not actually what Genesis 1.26 says. It says, he made them in the image so that they could rule. They're only able to rule because they're in the image. It's the image that gives us the ability as human beings to rule. Well, what is the image of God? Turn to Genesis 9 and verse 6. Genesis 9 and verse 6. This is just after the flood of Noah. And there are instructions that are given to Noah after the flood. And one of them is this in verse 6 of chapter 9. It reads this way. Whoever sheds human blood... By humans shall their blood be shed. Now notice these next words. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now notice from this verse that murder is wrong because humans are made in the image of God. In other words, it's not murder when humans are only ruling. It's not murder when humans are only doing something. It's just Murder if humans full stop have been killed. In other words, the image is not something we do. The image of God is something we are. The image is not about doing. The image is actually about being. There is... Something innate about human beings that makes up the image of God. In other words, we are fundamentally human beings, not human doings. Now, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't say any more about the image other than this. But this teaching has immense implications. What are these implications if humans are made in the image of God? Well, firstly, number one, the image of God gives every human being value. Every human being, no matter who they are, whether they're a brain surgeon or whether they're someone with Down syndrome, is sacred. Every human being has dignity. And that is why we as Christians are called to treat any and every human being with dignity and respect. Listen to James 3.9. He says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with our tongue we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. See, why do we not curse people? Because people have been made in the image of God and they have dignity. And we do not treat God's image that way. A second implication of being made in the image of God is this. All human beings are equal before God. Now, notice I didn't say that all human beings are equal to each other. We're not. Humans are different. We're taller, shorter, stronger, weaker, bolder, hairier, 
We're different. And because of this, we'll have different roles in life. But it's not what we do that makes us valuable. It's not our work that gives us dignity. It is who we are as bearers of God's image that makes us valuable. And it is as bearers of God's image that we are equal in worth before God. Now, this teaching has had a tremendous impact in history. Pretty much every human culture that has ever been practiced slavery. What were the cultures that started to bring about an end to slavery? Where was slavery abolished? It was in those cultures that were Christian. It was Christians who first led to the end of slavery. Why? Because they believed that all humans were made in the image of God and therefore were equal. Christianity brought the end of slavery in our world. Not only that, but the doctrine of equality from Christians gave birth to the idea of human rights. And Christianity, because of its doctrine of equality of humans, also gave birth to democracy. You see, it's the doctrine of the image of God that we're equal before God that speaks against racism. No one race or group is superior to any other. And it's this doctrine of equality before God that is so important when it comes to church life. The book of James, we read this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and is a brain surgeon and has made a lot of money. And a poor man in filthy clothes and is suffering from Down syndrome also comes in. If you show special attention to the brain surgeon and say, here is a good seat for you, but not to the poor man, you just stand there, sit over here by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? We are all equal in value before God, no matter what we do. In my culture back in Australia, one of the practices that I developed was when I met people for the first time, I decide not to ask them what they do. I just want to find out all about them themselves. I want to focus on who they are. I remember asking a friend of mine how he was converted. He said, Marty, you know, it was really interesting. I went to the local youth group because I was interested in women. <laughs> he said, what struck me, I'd never seen this before, is how the youth leaders cared for the losers who are amongst us. These people, the youth that we didn't want to go near. And yet the leaders had such a love for them. And I went away and that really impacted me. Because the world gave all the attention to the cool kids. And it's that that led to his conversion. It's this doctrine of the image of God that also stands behind why churches, where possible, and where language is not a barrier, that churches should be multi-ethnic. Isn't it fantastic to have our Vietnamese brothers and sisters here? Because we are all one. The one place in the world where racial harmony should be found is in the church. third way the image of God impacts us, I think, is the idea of self-esteem. Uh, this hit my country very strongly. What, what is self-esteem? It's the idea that you look inside yourself to find something that makes you valuable. And once I find something there that makes me valuable, then I can love myself for it. Uh, this sets us up for problems. Because if we try to value ourselves according to the things that we do, what happens when we get to the point when we can't do those things? For example, if we find our self-esteem in work, what happens if we get retrenched 
or we retire, or someone's better at our work than we are, we will no longer see ourselves as valuable. If we find self-esteem in our marriage, what happens if we divorce or our spouse dies or our marriage becomes unhappy? See, the whole idea of self-esteem rests on shaky foundations. Rather, we should seek to find value in being made in God's image because nothing can destroy that. And it's only God's opinion that counts. I am valuable in God's eyes. And you know what? If I'm valuable in God's eyes, I can relax. I can not try and find value from other people. And I can go and serve and love other people and it doesn't matter how they treat me in return. And so now, lastly and very quickly, having done the doctrine of humanity, the topic of humanity, we move now to the topic at the bottom of sin. It's only now that we can truly understand sin having set up an understanding of God, an understanding of creation, and an understanding of humanity. Marilyn Monroe, that great philosopher, (laughs) she once said this, I am good, but not an angel. I do sin, but I'm not the devil. I'm just a small girl in a big world, trying to find someone to love. And that's how many people see themselves, isn't it? They kind of say, look, I'm not perfect, but look, at the end of the day, deep down, I'm really a good person. And as soon as they say that, it shows a deep misunderstanding of what sin really is. See, what at its core is actually sin? We get a beautiful summary of what sin is. Have I got it up on? No. In 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3 and verse 4. 1 John 3 and verse 4. Wonderful definition here of sin. The Apostle John says this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact... Sin is lawlessness. Now, there it is. Sin is lawlessness. Here's the question. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness is not simply breaking a law or breaking God's law. In this context, lawlessness actually means a rejection of the lawgiver himself. It is a rejection of God. Lawlessness is not letting God be in charge of your life. Lawlessness is pushing away God's authority over our lives. Now that fundamentally was the sin of Adam and Eve. In other words, sin is not fundamentally an action. Sin is fundamentally an attitude. Remember, we are human beings, not human beings. So it starts in the heart. It is an attitude of rejection of God's rule. See, people can do kind things to other human beings, but what defines their sin is their attitude to God. Why do they do kind things? Do they do it because they love God with all their heart, mind, soul and strength? Sin is a bit like a teenage girl, let's say, who may be really nice to her friends at school. But when she comes home, she kind of treats her parents as though they don't really exist. Imagine if this wonderful teenage girl who treated her friends really well came home and never talked to their parents, never talked to her parents. And when they make a meal for her, she just takes it to a room and eats it there and just leaves the plate outside the room after she's finished for her parents to get and clean up. That's a terrible way to treat your parents, isn't it? That's a little bit like how the Bible defines sin. The Bible says that this is all how we treat God. We might treat 
friends well from time to time, but at the end of the day, how are we treating our heavenly parent? Well, we're not letting him be in charge of our lives. We're going on with life, ignoring him or rebelling against him, even though we might do good things at just a purely horizontal level. Sin is fundamentally this attitude lodged in our hearts of not letting God be our boss. And it's that attitude fundamentally that gives birth then to sinful actions. Now, that's exactly what Jesus taught, wasn't it? He said a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. See, a bad heart, bad attitude leads to bad actions. But a good tree brings forth good fruit. A good attitude leads to good actions. Jesus nailed it in Mark 7 when he said, For it is from within, it is out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside. You see, the root of sin is in the heart and the fruit of sin is in our actions. Because we reject God's loving rule over our lives in our heart, we proceed to love our job and our family, and our reputation, and pleasure more than we love God. And we end up worshipping the creature rather than the creator. Now, this is absolutely crucial in understanding how we deal with sin in our own lives. Because where we find struggles with particular sins, be it addiction to internet pornography or or addiction to people's approval of us, it's ultimately a problem lodged deeply in our heart. The man addicted to internet porn will not change that by just simply throwing away his mobile phone because he'll find someone else's mobile phone and someone else's mobile phone. A porn addiction is not about sex. It's about an idol in a heart, in their heart, that needs to be destroyed. And idols in our heart often arise out of pain in our lives that we haven't dealt with properly and not repented of. Particularly pain that comes from family dysfunction. We don't let God be our loving Father. Praise God we have a solution in the gospel. And what we need to do is hunt out where that idol is and deal with it. And then the actions will start to subside. Well, there's this morning's topics. We've gone through them quickly. Sorry to race through them so quickly. Uh, We've looked at the Trinity, that God is one substance and three persons. We've seen that humans are unique in creation because they're made in the image of God. And we've seen that sin is fundamentally an attitude of rejecting God's rule over us. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.